It's crunch time in the Big Apple. Welcome to this week's ATP podcast, which comes to you on the eve of the US Open in New York, the final Grand Slam tournament of the year. I'm Chris Bowers, and I'm delighted to be joined by Jill Krabus, fresh from her reporting duties in Cincinnati, where she was witness to one of the greatest finals ever seen in modern times. Jill, have you recovered from Djokovic beating Alcaraz in, what was it, three-setter lasting three hours, 48 minutes? I don't think anyone's recovered from that. It was one of the most amazing finals that we've seen from those two. And they even said it themselves. It was absolutely incredible the way each one pushed each other. And they spoke about it afterward. I mean, Djokovic was just like, man, you you know, we heard it. You never give up. You never give up. And Carlos was like, I'm Spanish. What do you expect? But I think we're going to we're hoping to see a lot more of those because around at the U.S. Open, everyone's been talking about already wanting the, to meet them in the final. And I actually interviewed Novak yesterday, and he was saying, I hope I hope that's the case because that means I'm in the final. But he's going to take it one match at a time. But everyone's been talking about it still as of yesterday and today. So it's been on the minds of a lot of people. I mean, some people have been saying this was the best match of the year. I mean, given that it came barely a month after that dramatic five-set Wimbledon final involving the same two players, I mean, that speaks volumes for what an epic the Western and Southern final was. But where do you think this leaves the Djokovic-Alcaraz rivalry going into the US Open? I think we're hoping to see a lot more. I'm, it's tough to tell because there's such a difference in age and a different moments in their career with where they are. Obviously, Alcaraz, very early stages of his career. We're hoping Novak plays for at least a few more years, but you never know. Obviously, he's at the later stages of his career. So I think we could see this rivalry at least a couple more years, depending on how how injury-free they are um, or remain and how because the game has become so physical. We saw it in that Cincinnati final, the exertion that both of them were portraying and, and how difficult it was every single point out there. So it, it was such a fantastic final. I do think we could see it for a couple more years, but who knows? I don't know. I mean, at the start of the year, I was thinking, gosh, I really hope they get a decent match because all they'd had was that one Madrid uh, match in 2022. And we've had three matches. We had the uh, semi-final at Roland Garros, which was amazing, even though it rather fizzled out after two sets. Uh, we had the sensational Wimbledon final, and now we've had probably the best Masters 1000 final ever. Uh, I suppose only two more to go, US Open final and uh, NITO ATP finals. Well, there's quite a few. Then you could say Paris indoors. I mean, you could you could keep going. But I think the other thing that makes it so exciting is how often they've switch that number one position this year. I think it's been maybe four or five times already that they've gone back and forth. And I think that just adds another element to it with how exciting and how everyone's been following these two. And But there's so many good guys. We've been talking about the depth of the men's game for so um, many years now. And there's so many that could be knocking on the door that have the potential to really have that upset. It's just if they can do that on the big stage in the big moment in the final of a Grand Slam. But I would love to see that. I would love to see all these talented guys maybe push and have some new winners as much as we love rivalries. Um, But I think it's I think it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be great. Well, another remarkable thing about Djokovic's win was that since he was the last of the nine Masters 1000s that he won, but he's now won three, three of the last five he's been allowed to compete in. And that leaves him just 20 ranking points behind Alcaraz, which sets us up gloriously for the final three months of the season, starting right here with the US Open. Now, if you cast your mind back a year 
The 2022 US Open was the first for many years without Federer, Nadal or Djokovic in the starting lineup. So the stage was set for exactly what you've just described, someone to write their own new chapter of tennis history. And onto that stage stepped Carlos Alcaraz. He had to save a match point in his quarterfinal against Yannick Sinner. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. But then he went on to win the title, beating Kasparud in four sets in the final. So let's hear from the defending champion now. When the Spaniard spoke with Paul King, the 20-year-old hit upon the feature that has impressed so many people about him. Well, uh, I consider myself, you know, a guy who, who learned fast, you know, from, from the failures, let, 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 let's say. I try to, uh, if I do something bad in a match, you know, in the, in, in the next match or in the next tournament, try to... Uh, to be better on that, uh, and I think, uh, of course, in uh, mentally, in you know, uh, for example, in Ranga Ross, uh, I didn't deal uh, well with the with the pressure, and Wimbledon I did it better. Um, of course, in last year I did uh, a lot of things uh, badly, and coming uh, coming into this year I tried to you know to to be better on that. I always say that uh, you you can be better and you can improve your, yourself also it's interesting your ability for for like big big shots risky shots at really incredible moments like in, in match point against Novak and Wimbledon where, where do these instinctive shots come from is it is it instinct or are you sort of just very brave do you think well uh, you have to be brave you know to do that honestly but for me it's, it's natural uh, I I always think about, about about it, you know, to, to, to do in a match, in tough moments, you know, you have to be natural, you have to be yourself, you know, in that moment. And uh, for me, uh, making these tricky tricky shots, let's say, uh, is something that uh, I think about the match and try to do in, in, in every moment. Finally then, uh, we love that you're always smiling on court. I mean, you're smiling now, even doing interviews. Not many people are doing that when they have to do the media day. But but what is it about you? You're just still at this phase of your life and the, your career that you're just enjoying every moment, it seems. Yeah, I, I try, you know, to enjoy, every, to enjoy every moment, not only on court, uh, but at, uh, off the court as well. Uh, doing all these kind of stuff is uh, part of your job as well, and I try to, to enjoy and uh, uh, it's something that uh, I really wanted when I was when I was a kid to, to be here so it's time to to enjoy to realize what I am and try to to have a smile all, all the time Carlos Alcaraz speaking with Paul King Jill Carlos's ability to learn from setbacks and learn quickly it is remarkable isn't it it's one of the things that really stands out to me even from a couple years ago I I remember specifically Last year, he went into the the 1000 Canadian event in the summer, and he outwardly spoken about how he felt he didn't handle being the number one seed for the first time at a Masters 1000 event very well. He actually felt the pressure and felt the nerves. And what does he do? Immediately recover and wins his first Grand Slam at the US Open. And then he did it again this year. Everyone was wondering how he was going to recover after he outwardly said that he the nerves got the better of him against Djokovic at Roland Garros. And he's able to come back even stronger at Wimbledon and beat him in a fantastic final at Wimbledon. It was just absolutely incredible. But he's he's spoken about that. He's had that from a young age. And I think the biggest thing for Alcaraz that that helps him 
learned so quickly is that he's not afraid to go for those big shots in those big moments. He's been doing it for so many years since he was very young. And he said, and he also said he's not afraid to miss, which is a massive, a massive asset to have. If you're willing to go for those shots, that's what makes the difference between those top players being able to get through those big moments. I'll come back to the, the, the big shots, the risky shots in a minute, but what do you think he will learn from the defeat to Djokovic in the Cincinnati final? What is it that will say, my goodness, another example of quick learning? Well, I think the last couple of days, um, he's just been saying how he's not even sort of thinking back, looking at the past. And I think that's what he learns is the willingness to let go quickly. And so he doesn't dwell on those moments. And he's proven that in numerous occasions. And he's and it was just a matter of a point here and there in, the, in that Cincinnati final. I don't think he had to change anything. I don't think he necessarily had to play differently. It was just sometimes that's how it goes. And it's just like when sometimes a player wins more points than the other player and they happen to lose the match. That's just how sometimes it pans out. So I don't think he necessarily has to look back on that match and change anything. It's just about going out there and repeating that 100% effort he gives all the time. I mean, going back to the, the, the big shots, the risky shots, it's interesting that Paul King asked him there, is it instinct or are you brave? I actually wonder if there's a third option. Is it fun? It's just the way Alcaraz plays that actually he doesn't have to be instinctive or brave. He just has to enjoy himself. And then the really creative shots, moments you don't expect them, flow from his racket. I think it's all in one what you just said, Chris. I think it's everything together. I think he doesn't even what we view as a risk for him is not a risk for him because he's been doing it his whole life. He does it in practice. He's done it since he was 10, 11, 12 years old. So to him, it's not even a risky moment. And yes, you, he's smiling all the time. I mean, it's rubbing off on other players. I mean, other players are now starting to say, yeah, I just smiled. And it does physiolo physiologically change you inside. It relaxes you. It releases that tension. But he honestly loves being in that moment and I think that goes a long way to being a top player is being able to embrace that challenge and actually want to be in those tough moments and he looks like he wants to be there all the time yeah I do think it sometimes gives his coach Juan Carlos Ferrero um, a sleepless night um, because I remember the match against um, Lorenzo Mazzetti at uh, Roland Garros when in the third set, Alcaraz was just having fun. And I was thinking, wow, this is just wonderful to watch. But it's like a practice match. Um, but this rather begs the question, is the enjoyment just the way Carlos is? Or is this a lesson to all of us? Would we all play better tennis or do other things in life better if we went out with a really conscious enjoyment mentality? Well, my first thought is yes. I think there ha there's a lot of accuracy to that statement. I think the more joy you bring to any aspect, no matter how fun or how difficult that moment may be, I think it does, it can help and it does change you. I mean, I've had experiences where I've started, my coach was trying to get me to laugh on the court. And as soon as I laughed, I did start playing like looser and better. But I have to say, it's not easy to do. When you're frustrated and tense and nervous, the last thing you want to do is smile or laugh. But you can see, I mean, there are moments with Alcaraz that you can see him maybe not happy with the, the last particular point he played. And then all of a sudden, it's almost like you see him remind himself, oh, yeah, I need to smile at this moment. And he'll look up and just give Juan Carlos for a, a little smirk. 
And then all of a sudden he looks like he's back on track. It's just, he's just infectious. He's so fun to watch. He's so explosive. And I think that's why everyone has gravitated towards him already, like so quickly in the last couple of years. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's wonderful to watch. And I, I, I do feel there's a lesson there, although everyone's different. So yeah, I agree with you. You can't just adopt smiling as a as a tactic there. But uh, OK, let's have a look at the draw now. Alcaraz is at the top. He opens against the German left-hander Dominic Kupfer. But there could be a repeat of last year's quarterfinal against Yannick Sinner before a projected semi-final against Daniel Medvedev. What's interesting about Sinner is not just that their match ended at uh, 10 to 3 in the morning and the longest the latest ever finish at the US Open. But the Italian has had wins against Alcaraz from junior days and also on the tour. And he always believes he can win. So I feel, Jill, that this is one where the matchup is really important if they get to play each other in the quarters. I think it's going to be very exciting if that happens. I think they both want that. And I think that's going to be a difference for Sinner to maybe get through that match against Alcaraz if it comes to that if it if they end up getting through to face each other because Sinner you know getting winning his first Masters 1000 in Toronto I think that a lot of things changed for him he's been talking about how his mindset is different and it was just those small little details in his brain that that made the difference so he feels like he's mentally tough he he sounds like he's ready to make that extra push to go even further in a slam and and that was the difference for me for him is getting to the point where he believes he can go further even if it is Alcaraz that he could potentially meet again it was a situation he had match points last year against Alcaraz to win that match so there wasn't much difference between the two but it's about you know it's about the mind in that situation and I do feel like Sinner is in a much better mind space yeah, I can see him as a maybe third or fourth favourite for this. He's he's playing really well at the moment, and yeah, Toronto could be a a real sort of um, release of a of a blockage in his confidence. At the bottom of the draw, Djokovic is the number two seed. He starts against Alexandra Muller of France. The Serb is looking to make three pieces of history at Flushing Meadows. Get this. He wants to become the first man to win 24 major titles. That would equal Margaret Court's record of 24 set in the 60s and 70s that many people thought would never be even neared, let alone broken. He'd return to the top of the rankings for a record extending 390th week. I mean, that's almost inevitable now because I think he only has to win his first round match uh, and he'd be guaranteed that even if Alcaraz defended his title. And he is looking to become the first man to win three majors in a calendar year four times. Now, those are all quantifiable. What's less quantifiable is the effect he's had on young Serbian players. When Djokovic started winning slams back in 2008, one of those young Serbian hopefuls was Miomir Ketsmanovic. ATP Uncovered set out to discover what Ketsmanovic makes of Djokovic. Growing up, my tennis idol was Novak Djokovic. Game set the match. Oh, gotcha. He's done it again. Djokovic looking every inch the best player in the world. It's history. How on earth has he made that? I think the first time I saw him was uh, during the first Serbian Open. I think it was in 2009. Again, set match. Djokovic. I went to watch uh, the tournament and, you know, he was playing there, so it was, it was pretty cool to see him play. I mean, then I was, what, eight, I think, so I didn't really think much about it. But I guess the more I played and, you know, the older I got, then I started, you know, to, to see 
what he does on court and everything to understand what it actually means. Oh, Djokovic doing Djokovic things. How good was the anticipation, the defense, the movement? Especially in 2011 when he won everything there is to win. Your champion, ladies and gentlemen, of the 2011. Ladies and gentlemen, your 2011 champion. Novak Djokovic. Novak Djokovic. I just love the way he competes on the court and, you know, fights through everything. It's uh, really inspirational. Physically, I admire that he can get to any ball and doesn't matter where he is, that thing is going to go in no matter what. Mentally, he's just, uh, you know, so much stronger than everybody. Nothing can get to him and, you know, the way he gets ready for matches is just on a different level. Rafa and Roger are his rivals. So I think all the matches that they played were always spectacular. So I guess, you know, the more they played, uh, the better they got against each other. What more do you have to do to win a point against this man? What more indeed do you need to do to win a point against Djokovic? That was Miomir Ketsmanovic, who starts his US Open campaign against Juan Pablo Varillas. As for Djokovic, his projected draw is Felix Auger-Aliassime in the fourth round, either Taylor Fritz or Stefanos Tsitsipas in the quarters, and a semi against Kasparuda Holgaruna, assuming they meet in the quarterfinals as projected. Jill, where do you see the biggest stumbling blocks for Djokovic? That's a good question because his section of the draw has quite a few qualifiers. I mean, when I saw that, it was amazing how many qualifier spots are in there. But um, I do... I mean, if Felix has confidence, and I spoke to Felix yesterday, actually, he was saying that he feels so fresh right now because he had a few months off where he wasn't able to play. And he almost feels like he's starting this part of the year in a different way, where a lot of other players could feel like this is the part of the year where it gets tough because it's been a long year. Um, I know he's not playing great, but he's got a good game to potentially hurt Djokovic. I still feel Djokovic getting through there. I, th I think Fritz could be the one that could test him first because Fritz is playing with a lot of confidence, had a title in Atlanta, is playing playing some great tennis. And I think Fritz is going to like these courts. He's got, got that big serve, big forehand. Um, so that would be the first one I would go to probably to maybe cause Djokovic some, some challenges. Djokovic physically, he's 36 years old. He still seems to bend like a a rubber child i mean how does he do it have you as an ex-player have you watched him and thought what does he do that the rest of them can't you know it's it's been a lifestyle for him and i think from so long ago and i think that's that's the biggest difference for him to be able to sustain the level and the physicality that he's still able to sustain it's it's not just about one thing it's not just about out going out on the practice court and making sure you get the hours in or it's not just about um, going to sleep at night it's not just about nutrition it's about everything that he does so meticulously that has gotten to the him to the stage where he can compete against a 20 year old Alcaraz at his best ability so it's just been constant and it Chris, you know, I mean, it has to be day in and day out to be able to do that exercise, to be able to live that lifestyle. And that's why he's been able to do it consistently to this day. And can you train the mind? Because, I mean, one of the most remarkable things about him is that he doesn't seem to play any worse on a, on a match point, whether it's for him or against him, as he does 
you know, on any other point, and that's got to denote incredible mental strength. Is that just something that you've either got or haven't, or can you train yourself in that? He just mentioned this yesterday, actually. Um, I got to interview him as well yesterday, and he said, we spoke about the mind, and his first thought was, it come, it, to him it came down to experience, and he's like, I know I have the experience to do it, and I said to him, I'm like, everyone else knows you have one of the best mental tough minds in the game and he said I and he was jotted it down to all experience he's like I've done it so many times that it's just when he gets in that moment I don't think he ever second guesses himself because he's been there so often and I think that's that's a big advantage for him do you think he's playing better worse or no different now that Federer has definitely gone and Nadal is off the tour possibly indefinitely I think he's playing better. I th- I think if you get complacent about where you're at and just you know just say okay I'm I'm playing great, it, it's inevitable that these guys are gonna catch up because everyone is getting better. But Djokovic, Federer, Nadal, Murray, all those guys have the mindset to always want to get better. I don't think they ever stop. I think it's just innate in them to constantly improve and constantly get better. So. For me, I think Djokovic is constantly improving. Uh, He does still have that aura about him when he goes out, and I think there's some guys that just don't think that they can do it against him, and he's proven it over and over again. But I I don't think Djokovic is ever going to, let's say, stall and not try and get better. Well, we are missing Federer and Nadal, and yet we could have an absolute blockbuster of a final in two weeks' time if it gets to Alcaraz against Djokovic. No disrespect to anyone else, but that would be massive. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. Let's have a look at some of the other players whose whole year could be seen as good or not so good, depending on how they do over the next fortnight. And we'll start with last year's beaten finalist, Kasper Ruud. There's a lot resting on this US Open for the Norwegian, especially after he had a poor start to the year. But as he explained to Jill, he used his and his team's analytical skills to get himself back on track during the clay court season when he turned very patchy form into a run to the Roland Garros final. I analyzed a little bit, first of all, you know, with my team, pretty much like straight away after the match, what I did well, what I felt out there and so on. And then maybe I watched some videos, what I, some things that I maybe did well, some things that I could have done better uh, and so on. So uh, it goes a little up and down. I remember earlier this year um, after I lost my first round in Madrid on, on clay, I was pretty like... Uh, clueless in a way on what I was doing wrong, what I needed to do better. So we all sat down and kind of watched a lot of matches from last time, but also matches that I felt like I played really well from maybe before. So kind of analyzed and went through what I did good, what I didn't do so good. So I think I've got a clear and a better kind of uh, vision of what I have to do when things don't go well. So Let's see. I mean, this year as a total has maybe not been as good as I hoped, but um, what happened in Roland Garros was obviously great. And hopefully I can kind of make that uh, as a kind of turnaround for me this year. And this next um, weeks and months on tour are going to be important. And I'm very motivated to try to play well. I'm going to give it my best. 
Can you be a little bit more specific about how what you became clear on, or is that you can't reveal that? Yeah, no, that's fine. I mean, uh, just um, I I needed to kind of be a little faster with my feet, run around a little more, and play with my forehand. I was getting stuck into these like backhand cross court rallies where. You know, most of the players on tour have uh, maybe a better and more dangerous backhand than myself. But then again, if I'm more able to run around and play heavy with my forehand, I can hurt a lot of opponents. So that's always going to be the goal for me. And I just kind of got stuck into this uh, uh, pattern on the court where people would kind of lock me up on my backhand side, and I wasn't, I didn't have the answers to 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 their kind of questions that they, they ask me on, on court. Uh, and of course, I'm always trying to improve every shot in my game, but uh, naturally I've always had a more comf comfort and felt more comfortable on the forehand side. So anytime I can run around the backhand and play either heavy inside out or inside in forehand, it's gonna be something that I need to look, look for. And that's just maybe one example of what I needed to do better and which uh, I was able to do in Rome and Roland Garros where I, where I played much better. You've mentioned also recently how important this part of the calendar year is. Um, how do you, I guess, look at it, focus on it mentally and be able to stay in a good frame of mind to know the importance of this last part of the year? It's, it's a good question. I think for me, um, after the Roland Garros, I, I kind of feel like we're halfway through the year. We played two out of the four Grand Slams and then we changed to a new surface. So I kind of let's say I sacrifice a couple of weeks of grass leading up to Wimbledon to just get a little time to breathe out, relax and kind of do a little small break uh, to clear both my mind and also get physically prepared for the second part. Um, and when we go from Wimbledon, I know it's kind of like this is the second part of the year. It's time to hopefully play well. The, the race for a lot of things is going to be on. Uh, currently I'm sitting number eight in the race to Turin. So I mean, I'm in a position where every week is going to be important. You have anyone from, you know, number six, seven to let's say 10, 11, 12 are going to feel like they're in the race and have the possibility to do it. So it's going to be a hectic and um, exciting kind of part of the, the year now. Um, so I've been in this position before a couple of years ago and, and I enjoyed it. It was fun. It was kind of stressful. But when I was able to make it in the end, it was a great, great relief. So I'm going to hope that something similar can happen this year and that I can have a good, yeah, like second part of the year. Second is going to be a lot of big tournaments coming up. You know, you have uh, US Open, um, Beijing 500, uh, Shanghai 1000, Tokyo 500. Paris 1000, there's a lot of points at stake. So if you do well in the second part of the year, you, you really have the chance to climb up and um, finish the year in a strong way. That was Kasper Ruud. He's currently 10th in the race to the NITO ATP finals in Turin. Jill, he talks very calmly, but do you get the sense that both the US Open and that run of tournaments in the two months after are particularly important to Kasper this year? I think so. He was very... Um very open about the fact that he does put is is going to put a lot of emphasis on this part of the year he he mentioned every week to him at this stage is going to be very important because that Nito final is in his mind a little bit so it is for him about kind of separating 
week to week and trying to stay in that present moment. I think the fact that he did so well and got to the finals of the U.S. Open last year, that it can only give you a little bit of confidence because you know you like the courts here. You know you've done well here. So I think that will help him a little bit. Um, but it's just for him about not putting too much um, expectation on his shoulders for how much weight he puts on this part of the year. And that's going to that's gonna be the key for him. And after the US Open, the, the focus will be very much on the NITO ATP finals and other players in the running to qualify for Turin who we've yet to mention. Andre Rublev, he could hit Daniel Medvedev in the quarters. Haven't mentioned Medvedev either. Third seed. Rublev's currently sixth in the race. Sverev is eighth. Sasha Sverev, he could hit the informed Grigor Dimitrov in the third round at the US Open and possibly Alcaraz in the quarters. And Alex Diminor and Tommy Paul are 11th and 12th in the race. Three or four wins could make all the difference to them. Anyone there you have your eye on? Um, I think um, in that section of the draw, there's so many. I mean, even the ones you said, I, they're all so close and they all have chances to make that push. So it's going to be who can handle the pressure because you know the NITO finals are always in their mind and this is a this is a big one a big part of the year to be able to make that push I think Sinner's got a chance we spoke to him we spoke about him sorry um and also Rublev for sure I think he's I think he's gonna like these courts he's been he's got another title under his belt this summer and playing some great tennis oh there's Everyone you mentioned, I think, Chris. I'm horrible at those answers. (laughs) You know I am. I'm afraid you're going to groan at my next question because it's becoming Uh. a bit of a regular one. But it's 20 years since Andy Roddick won here. And he's still the last American male singles titleist in a major. So the question is, are Fritz, Tiafo, Tommy Paul or anyone else ready to break that drought this year? And including that group also, Chris Eubanks after his great run at Wimbledon. I think so. I think... I think the, I think any of them could. It is so difficult playing in your home slam. I think that's something to acknowledge for sure. Um, there's just that added pressure. Did you feel it when you were playing here? I felt so stressed out during this during this event during the U.S. Open. Yeah, but I also grew up two hours from Flushing Meadows, so I had a ton of family and friends come and watch me play. And it's just trying to manage everyone, everything. It can get a little bit overwhelming. Um, and Fritz mentioned it before. He's like, it's, it's, he said it's about managing that in his, in his mind. So that's going to be a big deal for all those guys. Tiafo handled, handled it amazing last year, getting to the semifinals. I mean, he thrives off the energy, off the New York crowd. So he loves it. It's going to be about repeating that for him because that's kind of where his more mega stardom happened was last year at the U.S. Open. So, and now he's top 10. So now, there's that extra expectation. Tommy Paul's beaten Alcaraz twice now. So he's figure out he's a danger, a dangerous one there. And he's edging towards the top 10 as well. So I think they all got a shot. And a word about Milos Raonic, who hasn't confirmed that this is his final tournament, but he hasn't committed to anything beyond the US Open. He's drawn Stefano Tsitsipas in the first round. Milos told us earlier this year that he was determined to retire on his own terms. I mean, having had that astonishing win over Tiafo in Toronto, he lost a 14-12 tiebreak in controversial fashion and still came back to win. Do you think this would be an appropriate way for Raonic to bow out? Yeah, potentially, if he wants to. It's always great either retiring at a slam or retiring in your home country at, in for him, Canada. Um, so those are usually where the players choose to somewhere at home or at, or at a big event. 
I think he's, I mean, I've heard he's going to wait to see how he feels. I know he's been kind of seeing how his body feels during these events. And it's always sad when someone finally gets to that stage where they they choose their, to retire. But I know most of the players, when they get to that point, they want to go out on their own terms. They don't want to go out because they were injured. That's a big deal for these athletes. And I hear it over and over again from former players. I wish I would have ended on my terms. So I think that's where his mind is probably is, is he wants to feel good when he goes out there and when he decides to make that decision. So I think he's waiting to see if it's going to be here, if it's going to be another event, but he wants to feel good. And one person who's definitely bowing out after this US Open is John Isner. I, I guess that's no surprise, but are you sad about that? I am sad. I spoke to him yesterday. To, to, you spoke to everybody I, yesterday. I did. I I end up. I'm here. I'm here doing world feed commentating. But I at the last minute I got thrown in to do some a whole media day for ATP interviews, which was great because now I can let you know what they said. <laughs> but I did speak to John and. Um, I said I was very sad, but he goes, no, don't be sad. I'm happy. And I was like, I know, but I'm sad. <laughs> I think we're all going to miss him. But he said, look, it's been an amazing, amazing run. He's very grateful for ever, for everything. And I asked him about his best moments, even though this U.S. Open's not done for him yet. I, his best moments, he mentioned a few moments here at the U.S. Open. This is where he wanted to to stop because he had so many um, great moments out on Ash Stadium, out on some of the outer courts. So, but he's happy. He's got a family, four kids, and he and he feels ready. So he's in a great state of mind. And but he did say he's planning on being around the sport. So luckily, when he retires, I think we're going to still see some of Isner, which is great. Well, that's the last time we'll see that amazing service action at uh, tour level. That's for sure. Let's turn briefly to the women's singles. Iga Shiontek, the defending champion. She's looking good on the hard courts, uh, won the title in Warsaw. She looked a little jaded at Wimbledon and she's been talking about the fact that there's a lot of mileage. Do you think she's coming good for the big tournament or do you think actually she's vulnerable simply because of the amount of tennis she's played this year so far? I think maybe a little bit of both. I don't think she's vulnerable because of the amount of tennis. I think the fact that now some other players have defeated her can send a message to other players think, say, thinking it's possible that um, she can be beaten. And I think that, in in a sense, makes someone a little bit more vulnerable. So I, don't, I think she's always physically strong. So the amount of tennis, I don't think, would have that much of an impact. But for her, it's, I mean, because she recovers so quickly, she's almost similar to Djokovic is trying to do everything in her power to have those small details, everything where it's, um, you know, her sports psychologist, meditation, she's had whatever she has, like some bandage on her head to monitor something. I mean, she's always looking for that slight edge, that next best, best thing, because she, and she is so professional. So I have no doubt that she'll be ready both physically and, and mentally to go at the US Open. In my mind, she's still the one to beat. Well, she's a defending champion, Sabalenka, the number two seed. Uh, we'd like to wish a very happy 50th birthday to the WTA Tour. The uh, Women's Tennis Association celebrated its... 50th birthday in New York last week with a very impressive cast list and it included a speech by the ever impressive Coco Goff. Did you hear that, Jill? I mean, she was just so... I was there. You were there. Excellent. I was there. Yes, it was an amazing event. Um, the WTA did an unbelievable job. Um, they had Broadway singers out there with um, 
one song was She's on Fire with images from the original nine and images from current players intertwined. And it was just so beautifully done. Coco came out in a, in a beautiful golden dress um, and she really did shine up there. She's a perfect one one to be there. Um, she's been such an advocate and has always complimented and been a fan of Venus coming out and, and really advocating equal prize money and being and just being behind the whole historical part of the WTA. So it's it's just been great. It was unbelievable to see all of them up on stage together. So it was it was really nice. Well, I'm glad you could be part of it. So the U.S. Open gets going at 11 o'clock New York time on Monday. You can listen to live commentary on U.S. Open radio available via the tournament website, usopen.org. So, Jill, time to put you on the spot. Me too. Who are your picks, men's and women's singles? I knew you were going to ask me, so I'm prepared this time. I'm going to go with Medvedev and Jabir. Interesting. Um, I like to be interesting. (laughs) Well, I'm, I'm going to go for Djokovic, which you'll say is not interesting. But I just, having seen how determined he was in Australia this year after being denied the chance to play the year before, I think he'll have similar determination this year. As for the women, I'm going to take a flyer on Coco Goff. That may be slightly wishful thinking, but the fact that she has won a big tournament, she beat Sviantec for the first time, I just wonder whether that might release... The, the latent talent. She's been at a certain level for a long time. And I just think with that home crowd, I don't think she'll be um, overstressed by the crowd. And so I just think there's a chance she could get on a roll and win it. I'd, I'd love to see it, but I'd also love to see Jabir. I like our picks. One other item of news this week. We've talked about the NITO ATP finals in Turin, but the ATP announced that the next-gen finals will be held this year and the four subsequent years in Jeddah, which takes the tour to a new city. That's it for the US Open preview. The talking stops, the playing starts, and we'll be back to review how the first week has panned out. Join Jill Krabus and me next weekend when we'll analyse with Casper Rood-style attention to detail the first week of action and look ahead to week two. In the meantime, check out the ATP website for all the latest news, videos and results, as well as the official website at the US Open at usopen.org. I'm Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening and enjoy the tennis. <laughs> <laughs>